0: Hello, Health Affairs listeners. I wanted to take a brief moment to talk about the Health Affairs Insider Program. Insiders get exclusive insights and access into the sharpest minds in healthcare research through our virtual events and newsletter programs. To celebrate our second year of running our Insider Program, enjoy $40 off of an Insider membership with the discount code INSIDER at 2 at checkout. In 2024, we secured a suite of health policy experts to unpack the uh, most pressing developments in healthcare with specialized newsletters on antitrust, drug pricing, uh, health policy reform and developments, healthcare spending and prices, and health equity. Uh, make sure you check those out. Check the show notes and use discount code INSIDER at 2 to become a member today.
1: Hello, and welcome to A Health policy.
2: We need to start thinking about how do we meet need with supply. And under the current system, unfortunately, uh, so much of that is being driven by the profitability of new facilities.
1: I'm your host, Alan Weil. Every presidential election of the last few decades has featured a debate on health policy, and the 2020 election was no exception. Whether we're discussing Medicare for all or something more modest, attention quickly turns to the price tag, how much these reforms will cost. Now we've known for a long time and we've published papers in health affairs that show people without health insurance use about two thirds as much healthcare as those who have health insurance. And that's even after controlling for health status. So it's reasonable to expect that providing everyone with coverage is going to increase their utilization and someone has to pay for those services. But how good are we at estimating what those costs will be? That's our topic for today. On today's episode of A Health Podacy, I'm joined by Adam Gaffney, a pulmonary specialist at Harvard Medical School and Cambridge Health Alliance. Dr. Gaffney and co-authors published an article in the January 2021 issue of Health Affairs, analyzing how medical care use is likely to change under a system of universal coverage in the United States. Their analysis suggests that prior estimates were probably too high. Dr. Gaffney, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So you have some really important findings, but I think in order to understand them, we have to set the stage a little bit. So we're gonna take a little bit longer to introduce the subject than we might in other discussions. So let's just start with the basic economic principle, which is when you provide people with health insurance, they can get care at a lower price than they would have when they were uninsured, because they had to pay for it all themselves. And that's going to increase how many healthcare services they get. So just walk us through those first few steps of the analysis.
2: Sure. So, you know, this is, as you suggested, economics 101 to some extent. And the basic principle is that as the price of something goes up, what we demand and that can be any kind of service or good, goes down. And this has been studied in healthcare. And we know that it's not just about being uninsured, which leads people to use less healthcare, but individuals with high deductibles, high co-pays, and really any kind of cost sharing or out-of-pocket payments cause individuals to use less healthcare. This is sometimes referred to as moral hazard, going back to an older literature, but it goes by many names, you know, a downward sloping demand curve. It can be just, as physicians, we might just say a patient did not get care they needed because of cost or cost-related non-adherence. And all of these phrases and all of these terms refer to the same thing, which is that people use less health care as the price goes up, people use more health care as the price goes down.
1: So when policymakers propose expanding health care coverage they're probably gonna anticipate a pretty significant cost associated with the new services people obtain. Typically, they'll then put other provisions in their legislation designed to offset that because we have a limited amount of money. And some of those are particularly to either reduce prices because if you pay less per service, you can afford more services, or other places like administrative costs or profits So talk about how those fit into this analysis.
2: Well, that's exactly right. I mean, when you think about national health care reform, you have costs and you have savings, right? And really, from the perspective of overall health care spending, which is what is the most economically important metric of the affordability of health care reform, when you focus on national health spending, the only new cost is increased utilization, increased use of services. That's the new cost. But then you can sort of have a look at the other side of the ledger, the savings. And as you suggested, there are a few key areas that national healthcare reform can can actually save. One is in the amount paid per service or per drug, per prescription drug, right? And all, I think, you know, everyone agrees that there has to be regulation in, in that respect. But there's also savings in administration, which can be actually quite large, as the Congressional Budget Office has estimated, uh, given that, you know, traditional Medicare has about a 2% overhead versus probably around 12% for private insurers. And that that translates to a lot of money. So that's right. You have the new cost of utilization on the left side. And on the right side, you have savings, prices, and administration. And in a way, in a very simple sense, that's sort of health reform economics 101.
1: Okay, so let's focus back on the increased cost side, understanding that there will be offsetting places due to policy changes. So the typical notion, if you just give one more person health insurance, is that their utilization is going to go up. But what your paper gets into is that when the scale of the expansion is larger, there actually might be constraints that suggest that the utilization doesn't go up as much for everyone together as it would if you were just looking at people one by one. Tell me a little more about that.
2: Well, that's right. I mean, sometimes the whole can be, you know, more than the sum of the parts or less than the sum of the parts. So- I should first mention that there is, in line with what we were saying earlier, that price goes down, use goes up. I mean, that has been supported by these sort of two seminal experiments. The Rand Health Insurance Experiment conducted in the 70s and 80s, um, which was actually designed to help plan for national health insurance. And then the Oregon Medicaid Experiment more recently. But the reality is, is when you look at sort of past coverage expansions, Universal coverage expansions in other nations—you know, beginning with New Zealand in the 1930s, extending all the way up to the Affordable Care Act, which wasn't quite univer- wasn't universal, but sort of this, the principles apply. The increases you see in use are really not as big as many would expect, given, given some of this data. So the question is, well, why is there this kind of paradox there? Why do we see these sort of um, big estimates of increased utilization, say, under a Medicare for all plan, under, in many economic analyses, and, and more modest um, increases in hospital days, hospital discharges, physician visits in countries like the UK or Canada after they implemented their national health reforms. And what we argue in our paper is that many of these economic analyses focus on the demand side of the equation. How would demand change? They don't focus on the supply side. And in healthcare, supply is critical. There are only so many doctors. There are only so many hospital beds and ICU beds. This is The supply is not limited for certain kinds of things, and we can talk about that, like pharmaceuticals, for instance. This doesn't apply to that. But for those kinds of services, there is a limited supply. And the other thing we know is that we tend to use that supply, all of it, or most of it. Doctors' appointments schedules are pretty full, typically. ORs remain busy. Hospital beds remain filled. It goes back to a old precept of pioneering healthcare analyst Milton Romer, who way back in the 1950s sort of said, quote, you know, a hospital bed built is a hospital bed filled, but under conditions where you have insurance, meaning if it's sort of free at point of use or very subsidized, people, doctors tend to use that supply, patients tend to use that care. So if you have a system in which supply is finite, and if that supply tends to be utilized because of the nature of healthcare, because of the phenomenon of what was referred to as supplier-induced demand, right, then it doesn't really make sense that you can neglect the total supply when analyzing uh, potential increases in utilization. So the argument we make is that utilization increases in nation after nation are constrained by the finite supply of providers. And we also argue that that's not necessarily a bad thing, given that some of that Supply utilization may not be actually health optimizing, maybe low value care. And so if we see offsets in that low value care, then that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, so that's a little bit of some of the argu- sort of an overview of some of the arguments we make.
1: So that's really clear. And I was struck in looking at the paper that it seems to be commonplace for countries to overestimate the increase in use when they adopt these kinds of larger reforms. And is that because they weren't looking at supply constraints, didn't take them in consideration, or do you think they underestimated them? Or maybe they overestimated the amount of demand that was going to come into play when coverage was expanded?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that the idea of focusing on supply constraints is not a new one, but it is often neglected. So for instance, you know, the CMS actuaries predicted there would be a significant increase in utilization after the Affordable Care Act. And when I say increase, I don't mean among those newly covered. There certainly was, we all agree that the newly covered, but would there be a significant increase in our society at large? And there really isn't evidence that the Affordable Care Act increased society-wide hospital utilization or physician utilization. So I I think you're right. I think that many of these previous economic analyses did not, um, you know, sort of look at the supply side or didn't consider it. Um, Or or if you go back far enough, there just wasn't the sort of sophistication that we have now. Um, I think that that is, you know, helps explain it. You know, many of the Medicare for all, for instance, economic analyses, um, some
0: have addressed it, most haven't.
1: Well, this is probably a good place for us to take a quick break.
0: What does it mean for health system leaders to pursue a culture of health? To help answer this question, Health Affairs launched Leading to Health, a series supported by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. With these journalists written articles, we examine some of the most innovative health systems out there. Together, they represent a celebration of collective leadership and an opportunity to learn from the successes and challenges of health system transformation. Health Affairs recently collected these lessons on a new, easy-to-navigate resource page. You can find every article in the series and also related podcasts, blogs, and interactive maps. Visit healthaffairs.org slash leading dash dash health and stay up to date on the latest reporting and research.
1: And we're back with Dr. Adam Gaffney talking about how we need to consider supply constraints when we're trying to understand what it's going to cost to expand health insurance coverage. When we went to the break, you had mentioned that some sectors within healthcare are constrained in ways that others are not. And I wonder if we could just spend a little bit more time on that. You mentioned hospitals and doctors, and you mentioned pharmaceuticals, where even ramping up supply of pharmaceuticals presumably takes some time. Where do we think the constraints are going to be greatest and where do we think they might be the least?
2: Well, I think each you have to examine each sector separately. I think in the pharmaceutical sector, yes, you may have to ramp up production, but that is a relatively easy thing for these firms to do. You know, assuming someone is is paying for the, for the drugs as they would be under under health reform. So, I, I think we would assume that all sort of demand would be met under a health coverage expansion of, for pharmaceuticals. Then let's look at physicians for a second. So, And again, we don't argue in this that there will be no society-wide increase in utilization. We're arguing for more modest than, than has been previously estimated. So physician supply is, is fairly constrained in the United States. That being said, under some reforms, you could envision physicians having less time devoted towards Billing and administrative activities, right? And that's one of an argument for a, a single payer type of financing reform. And particularly if, if some physicians are within institutional providers that are publicly budgeted, they may have no billing responsibilities and they may have no, and their documentation may not need to reflect billing prerogatives. In that case, Um, it is fair to expect that physicians will have some more time, which would allow them to provide more visits. Similarly, we can envision some increased use of mid-level providers. So, there is some slack there, but it is finite. Let
1: me stop there for a moment, because that that raises a really interesting point. So, if we free up physicians' time, we say, oh, there's going to be more utilization. And in a fee-for-service world, more utilization is more cost. But if you change how a physician spends time from administrative tasks to clinical care, they're more productive. And that actually isn't a new cost to the healthcare system, right? That's a more efficient use of the money we have. And it actually, once you move out of a fee-for-service world, that isn't a cost-creating phenomenon, is it?
2: No, it's the opposite. I mean, if you view this from the perspective of institutional providers, nurses and doctors who have who devote you know X amount of their time towards um, clerical administrative responsibilities, billing activities, that would be realized as a reduction in hospitals overhead, in a sense. and it would allow them to increase, the provision of care within an existing budget. In other words, increased utilization without increased clinical operating expenditure.
1: So this reminds me that the pure economists always tell me that the real cost, and this is sort of where you were earlier, the real cost of healthcare, regardless of who pays the bill, and that's a very important issue, but the real cost is the inputs. It's how many people and how much capital are putting effort into this. The amount we spend is how much we pay those people or what the return on capital is. But that's just a price phenomenon. The actual resources consumed by healthcare are people and capital. And so if you make the people more efficient, you don't actually incur a new cost. Now, again, someone's going to fight over the dollars and I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to think about this from a pure economic perspective. So when we're talking about supply constraints, you really have to think, I guess, in multiple ways, because we were talking about the constraints of the, of the number of physicians. One is how many, but the other is how productive. And, and if you increase productivity, you loosen a supply constraint, but that actually isn't a cost increasing. If, if utilization goes up as a result of that, that's not system-wide cost increasing. Whereas if you need another physician because people are getting care they weren't getting before and there's no improvement in productivity, that actually is a system cost. So you actually kind of have to think about those differently.
2: No, I mean, I agree. Again, I think from the hospital perspective, it's even more clear. You know, if a hospital is able to provide more care within an existing budget, Um, that is not a new cost. That is an existing cost with new new services provided um, at the expense of less, say, administrative apparatus and bureaucracy.
1: You're interested in this in part because of its implications for estimates associated with a single-payer model. Talk to us a little bit about how your work helps inform a debate over a proposal like that.
2: In two ways, or maybe maybe three. The first is the prerogative of having accurate estimates, right? You know, an economic analysis that says that utilization is going to rise 20%, it's just not realistic, and that—and and that's because it's not taking into account these real-world factors and the, the supply side of the equation. So, we, so wh- wherever you fall on this in terms of your opinion, we need accurate estimates, and that's one thing. But the second aspect of this is probably most people agree now with that point—the idea that supply constraints play a role. But I think that there's a belief that those supply constraints are sort of causing some people to not be able to realize their healthcare needs. Right. In other words, that well, okay, what, how, you know, is this a good thing? Are you just stealing from Peter to give to Paul? You know, why would you sort of even want to? You know, talk about the sort of offsets that you know well-off or maybe already insured patients have. And the answer is sort of goes back to what I was saying earlier, which is that we need to think a little more about the fact that we're talking about attenuations in supplier induced demand and, and there's, there's, there's literature to support this. These sort of reductions in care provided will likely represent you know wasteful care and, 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 that's, and that's, that's not a bad thing. The third thing I think it does bring up, though, which is a a slightly separate issue, is that we do need to think about supply as a cost control lever, right? And this is something that is the reality in most, say, European countries and in Canada. Yes, you can achieve universal coverage without cost sharing. Um, I, I think the evidence shows, and nations have done it, so we know it's possible. But you do have to maintain control on the supply end. You do need to regulate who can build a giant new tower or not. And that kind of focus on capital expenditures you know, used to be a greater health policy concern and has sort of faded from the limelight. Uh, and I think that's another thing that our um, work is intended to emphasize, that yes, it's economically feasible to achieve you know, universal coverage and to eliminate financial barriers, but you do need a system to Allocate new infrastructure, and that 's not only a cost control prerogative it 's also an equity prerogative because um, as long as you know profits and revenues is what's driving the creation of new infrastructure you 're going to continue to see disparities and inequalities in, in where the infrastructure is um, that's going to fall along economic and, and often racial ethnic lines. so I think that's another aspect of this of this program.
1: Yeah, so let's just spend a few more minutes on both of those points, because they're really important. Now, uh, The first one was just that we need good estimates, and no one, I think, would disagree with that. Uh, this notion of limiting supply-induced demand is a potential uh, source of quality improvement because that de- that some of that demand is wasteful. Seems to me, uh, probably in the aggregate, there's some merit to it, but it does come back to this equity question, which is there are certainly going to be places where, because there already are now, uh, where supply constraints are not going to drive out low-value care. They're just going to drive out care. And as you referred to the RAND experiment, which admittedly a whole lot of time has passed since then, but uh, the the patient or the clinician's ability to differentiate between high and low value and, and stop doing the low value and continue the high is pretty modest. So how confident can we be I guess I'm thinking about the politics of this. People say you know you'll be you'll be losing care because someone else is getting it. You said robbing Peter to pay paul how How strong is our evidence base that uh, that the kind of uh, constraints that we're going to see really are not going to harm people's health?
2: Well, we have some really interesting research to look at, as well as I think some common sense and clinical experience. But I'll I'll, I'll touch on the research first. There was a paper that we cite by uh, Gliad and Hong that looked at pre-ACA Medicaid expansions. Um And I looked at how they affected the utilization of care by Medicare beneficiaries. They also looked at uh, just uninsurance rates being driven by, by sort of um, market fluctuations. But the long story short is how does the sort of uninsurance rate among the working age population affect the use of care by the Medicare population? And they found basically that when, you know, there's more uninsured working age people, more uninsured that that actually drives more care being given to the medicare population okay is that a good thing well their work would suggest it isn't that the care that they received it it was sort of more maybe a little more back surgery care that actually the beneficiaries themselves actually felt that they were getting more unnecessary care no change in mortality and you know so there was no evidence that that extra care was was helpful you know i think that for those of us in clinical medicine um we do I think we are able to prioritize well up to a point when the supply just needs to be increased, right? So under COVID, there's cases you can see clearly where the supply is simply inadequate. But this is a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic, Right? But typically, you know, if you have like I'm an ICU physician, if you just have a lot of ICU beds, um, are you going to use a lot of open? Are you going to use some of them just for pure observation uh, in cases where it really doesn't probably make much of a difference? The answer is probably yes, not because you have any financial incentive, just because, well, why not? You know, why not have a little more uh, attention? And so I think we are able, and that's a that's probably an example uh, where there is some marginal benefit. There's also lots of instances of people getting devices and of getting surgeries, of getting uh, pacemakers and defibrillators that are real uh, stents that are really really low value. And if and if we can have providers spend more of their time, you know, giving meeting the unmet needs of of patients who had been avoiding the healthcare system because they were uninsured or the deductible is too high then that's good. So I think there is literature. I think there's some sort of common sense in there as well.
1: So let's just close with a quick discussion about upside of supply constraints, which I think many, again, in a political context use as a a bludgeon against any sort of universal coverage. How do we build these systems so they're responsive? After all, the need for hospital beds, Uh, The need for different types of clinicians, changes over time as our technology changes, outpatient versus inpatient, freestanding versus part of a general hospital. If we're trying to estimate the future, we also need to be thinking what needs to be in place to make sure that we have uh, signals that we can hear and respond to if those supply constraints are actually harmful.
2: The reality is, is that the supply constraints are actually already in effect today. You know, there was a, that article that, that, that you ran in Health Affairs, looking at how ICU. I keep going back to ICUs. That's what I do. But ICU beds, sort of per capita, were very uneven across the United States, and and were uneven in terms of like rich areas had more, right, and and poor areas less. So so these inequities already exist. So you're so so, and these constraints already exist. So you're absolutely right that we need to start thinking about how do we meet need. With supply and under the current system, unfortunately, uh, so much of that is being driven by the profitability of new facilities and of expanding facilities. Uh, we see you know giant glassy new towers going up uh, one place and a urban hospital being closed somewhere else. And what's that about? Is that about need? Not really. It's about profitability. So uh, Nate I mean, we can you know it's probably a larger discussion, but you can look at the amount of resources in a community the demographics of a community, the level of illness in a community, and you can attempt to say, we need more facilities here. And you know what? This area is probably over, ha- has more than they need. And that can't be done overnight. It's not going to be done uh, in one day. But with you know a national health program of some sort, um, you actually have the tools to allocate infrastructure uh, to to look for those areas that, yeah, well, the supply actually needs to grow, and um, other areas where they're just doing way too many cardiac catheterizations, and it doesn't make any sense, um, and maybe they need one less cath lab. So um, that's the kind of uh, planning, which is sort of a four-letter word in, in in the current moment, but I think we need more of, and I think it's not going to be a four-letter word you know in the aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic when people realize that, well, actually... know, we do need to think more about health planning. That's where the idea of planning comes in. And that's, I think, the final thing that we get at in our article, that we do need to actually plan um, so we can have supply where we need it and not just where it's revenue-generating.
1: Well, I have to say your paper uh, helped me think differently about how we understand the implications of policy change. And I love a paper that does that. The findings themselves are intriguing in in the sense that uh, supply constraints really do need to be considered more seriously than I think most of us have taken them in the past. And it's great to get your insight through this conversation. So, uh, Dr. Gaffney, thanks so much for joining me today on Health Policy.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It was a really interesting discussion.
1: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about
0: a health policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Brian Dobbs, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Podacy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening and have a great morning, day, or evening.